Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. absolute pleasure and honour to be part of this series and to be here with all of you this afternoon. I'm aware that I speak in a double capacity, if you like, with what I tend to describe as an integrated vocation between the arts and theology. And so that's why I'm wearing this thing as well as associate rector. So I was ordained in 2018 at St. Paul's Cathedral. And prior to that, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be an academic and worship in a Christian church, but ultimately focus on what it was to become an established professor, God willing, in in architectural history. And that was my trajectory. And then in about 2015, it became clear that perhaps there was another path to uh, open up and follow. And so that's how I've I've been able to start. And it really feels like the beginning of something for me to uh, live in this way as a scholar, as a researcher, and as a priest as well. And to give you a sense of a little piece of context, I'm doing this uh, today with you this afternoon. And one of the things that I'll be moving on to think about quite soon later on today is being host for a group who come to the church as guests, 35 of them every Monday evening, and they're experiencing life as homeless people and people on lower income. And they come for a three-course meal, which we lay out on these beautiful tables and tablecloths in the church. And there are about 12 or 14 different volunteers who every single Monday support that work and work together. And so actually, we need some volunteers. If you'd like to volunteer for that, um, please do let me or uh, one of my wonderful King's colleagues know. So that's the kind of blend within which I bring my art historical and culture perspectives. And prior to taking on my role at St. James's down the road, not too far from here, I was at the National Gallery, which is even closer to here, as the Amundsen Fellow in Art and Religion for 2021 to 22. And that's the experience that I'd like to share with you today. And in particular, about one painting and the way that it connects to a new network and the way that interfaith connections of various kinds and different sorts of perspectives can live together in spaces like museums and public art collections where the art itself is a host. The art itself provides hospitality. So that's the core of what I'll be opening up for you today in the next 40 minutes or so. So let's give you some context on this. For over a decade, the Howard and Roberta Amundsen Fellowship in Art and Religion at the National Gallery has produced a range of research outputs foregrounding the importance of Christianity and the sacred within art history and visual culture. It is within this context that two networks focusing on sacred art have taken shape at the gallery, and these have been developed in close collaboration with Susanna Avery Quash, also known, and I'm happy to say this for the record online as well, as truly one of the finest line managers in the world. So I've been very, very grateful in all sorts of ways to work with her and with our team at the gallery. She is senior curator for research and the history of collecting, and she also leads the art and religion program, supported by the Amundsen's. The two new networks, one of which I've mentioned briefly, are the Interfaith Sacred Art Forum, for theologians and community leaders, 
and the Sacred Art and Collections Pre-1900 Network. We should come up with a snappier title, but that's the title we have so far. And that network is for curators and art historians, and they learn from each other. The National Gallery's collection is a bridge, then, a host for both these groups. The paintings that we choose year on year, last year was the inaugural year, and it continues to grow and develop this year and hopefully in the future. The paintings that we choose offer unique spaces of hospitality that make links across different periods and religious perspectives in ways that we hope will be insightful, inspiring, and challenging. The networks are establishing new partnerships, not only within London and the National Gallery, but between the participants and the collaborators within the network itself. So what we found is that people are splitting off in all sorts of interesting ways, finding affinities with one another, perhaps in Birmingham or in Scotland, and wherever they're based as curators and as theologians, perhaps something like a Jewish rabbi working together with a curator in Birmingham to help to develop interpretation around an exhibition. That's a real live example. That's been really interesting. So those sorts of things are growing out of this core experience together. Though the National Gallery is a space characterized by predominantly Christian histories and perspectives, and though the founding partners in the networks are also connected to Christianity, the National Gallery is a secular, civic, public collection in which the intention and collective culture is for all religions and belief systems to be respected and celebrated. And so I want to focus today on the first steps in the development of this interfaith network in particular and its potential for deepening understanding between Jewish, Muslim, and Christian groups and perhaps more in future in relation to the National Gallery's collection. So in the summer of 2021, while developing a new exhibition project, which uh, that I'm very excited about this. The press release for this exhibition has just come out today. So the exhibition is called The Fruits of the Spirit. It's a virtual digital exhibition. And we were thinking about how to blend together works of art with aspects of scripture. So while that conversation was happening, Susanna and I at the gallery were having a simultaneous conversation that became the instigation of the art and religion project I'm speaking about today in conjunction with none other than King's College London, and with Ben Quash and Chloe Redaway in particular, and the Church of England Parish just down the road of St. Martin in the Fields, that really big church in Trafalgar Square with Sam Wells and others. Building on the historic work of the Amundsen Fellowship Program, which has been running for over 10 years now, and extending its reach yet further, the project's intention in its inaugural year and thereafter is to establish these networks in order to create the way that specialist expert audiences and wider public audiences can engage with each other. So there's this kind of ripple effect as well. It is something which exists within a research context. It is also something that's meant to have public benefit something that really works for absolutely everyone in a way which is practical and pragmatic as well as we hope inspiring and really spiritually uh, invigorating as well. So these inherently interdisciplinary networks are designed to interlace with one another and the intended outcomes include creating spaces and events both in person and online and we've had several already within which insights can be gained and shared regarding the importance of religion and faith within museums and within everyday life. The key participants in the project all hold complementary expertise in theology and the arts, as well as experience in working collaboratively with people from many religions. This group's intention 
was to draw together a diverse range of people, and we continue to be working on that in a way which is intersectional and well-intentioned. But as ever in these groups, we have a long way to journey, and we are very, very conscious of that. So in November 2021, these 12 people, the first cohort, from Christian, Jewish, and Muslim backgrounds gathered for a dialogue on the theme of crossing borders. And with all of those associations that you may immediately have with that theme, that's where we went in all kinds of different directions. And there were two paintings at the epicenter, the rest on the flight into Egypt and the finding of Moses, both of which were by Orazio Gentileschi. This is a detail of the finding of Moses. And if I were to show you this just in isolation, even with this pointing figure and this pleading woman and everything else, you might think, ah, maybe this is a nativity. Maybe this is an image of Jesus. You would certainly notice that everyone in this painting, and I'm going to zoom out in a second, is white, that this baby is you know, pleasantly plump and chubby. You might not notice something that a Jewish colleague of mine noticed, which is that the baby Moses is sucking his thumb. No one has yet picked him up. This is a little infant in the act of self-soothing on the brink of an extraordinarily dramatic moment, having been placed in the river with great concern and peril about whether or not he will survive and being taken up out of the river in the most unlikely of circumstances so that he will not only survive but go on to lead and liberate. So this is the moment in the drama that in his 17th century Italian painter context, Orazio Gentileschi has chosen to bring to life for us. So that's the whole painting. This painting was commissioned for and by the court of Charles I in the early 1630s. And it's also connected to the development of the Queen's House in Greenwich for uh, Henrietta Maria, for the wife of Charles I. And it's meant to be able to connect as well then with the birth of the future heir, the future king, Charles II. So this takes the story of Moses' early life and connects it deeply to monarchy and kingship and good leadership, which is a very interesting thing to do considering the life of Moses and the vulnerability and the persecution of the Israelites and the enslaved quality of the Israelites in Egypt under the family of Pharaoh. So what Orazio Gentileschi is trying to do is to create the sense of narrative, telling the story afresh as an artist, as an artist who is also a theologian, Art as theology is a really important idea here. Just like you might get a 12th century sermon or some commentary from the 6th century in Christianity, you might get a painting like this from the 17th century, and that artist is illuminating something in scripture and in religious ideas that someone who is writing a text that a writer, as a scholar, might be doing in exactly the same way. So the relationship between text and image and interpretation was also very important for us in relation to this painting and in relation to this project. If you look in the background of this picture, you will see a little strip of blue with a green hill and a little green bank on either side and some little trees. I hope that you can all see that just beneath those two women who are gesturing wildly out towards the frame of the picture. That's meant to be Egypt, but it looks an awful lot like England. It looks like a kind of 18th century national trust property sort of a vibe. And that's absolutely deliberate because Orazio wanted to connect this story, right, to the history and the present moment of monarchy in England and the significance of this story in Egypt. 
This opens up a whole series of problems, right? So especially when people are looking at this who come from a completely different background, who connect as Jewish, Muslim, and Christian people with the story of Moses in all kinds of ways. One of the questions, as we'll get to later on, is why should I care about this painting in its relationship to the history of English monarchy in the 17th century, when this is not the Moses I know? All of these people are white. It's set in this particular space. It's set in a European Christian context. Why should I care? And that's one of the things that I think is really important for all of us to resonate with. My role, anyone's role, I would hope, at the National Gallery, as a fellow, as a curator, as someone who is collaboratively bringing people together from different backgrounds, is not to be an apologist for the paintings. Not to say, isn't this the best painting you've ever seen? But to say, what kinds of questions are being opened up by this picture? And why is that important for us to investigate and connect with today? So in the best possible sense, I don't care whether you like this painting or not. I have no particular interest one way or the other. I do to an extent. I feel really invested in it myself. So I care that you're interested. You might not be, and that would be cool, you know. But this is not about loving this painting. This is about journeying with this painting critically, much in the same way that all of you as scholars in your own right and at different phases of your life experience here at King's, much in the way that all of you will be journeying with a series of texts or material culture or whatever it is that underpins your study. It's not enough to look at it and just say, wow, this is really beautiful. You need to look at it and think, ah, this is teaching me something, perhaps in the way that it snags or pulls or asks questions or makes me curious or irritates or really offends a group of people. And as a result, this is worth engaging with. That's the kind of question that I really welcomed and that I thought was really, really interesting with this. And so here is a little bit of context about where the painting originally hung. And it was on the ground floor. And so the gestures of these two women, unfortunately now, the painting hangs in the National Gallery in a beautiful grand room, beautiful 19th century room, surrounded by paintings from a similar period and from a similar cultural context. And so now those two gesturing women are gesturing at some other painting with some other figures in it. But originally, where it was made for, these women would have been pointing out the window towards the Thames because the Queen's house is on the bank of the River Thames in Greenwich. So there's a direct connection being made here between the life of Moses and from the point of view of the court, our city, our story, our king, our leader, our river. And that too is contentious and also very exciting when we think about translating or translocating the experience of a, of a scriptural story that has a particular time, place, moment, and the way that that scriptural story comes alive for these people in their place and in their moment. I think that that helps us, regardless of our belief or our faith background, of any faith or of no faith. It helps us to situate ourselves in relation to history. And so that's another reason why we chose this painting to work with. And I mentioned that there were two Orazio paintings that we were working with. So one of them on the left we've been spending some time with, and the other one on the right by the same artist, Orazio Gentileschi, is the rest on the flight into Egypt. And I looked at this with a series of people, including a, a wonderful, um, oh, I'm going to say this, all right, including one of the lecturers in this series who came to speak about it with me and brought, uh, and brought someone with her, uh, brought her daughter with her. So we're, we're looking at this together. And this woman looked at her daughter and kind of smiled and said, ah, you did that to me. 
And I was like, well, this is really interesting. I don't have children. I've never breastfed anyone in my life. And so I was like, I don't quite understand what's happening here. But this is a very bold and intimate picture of breastfeeding. And what I'm told, not only in that encounter with that family, but also by other women looking at this painting with me, is that we have a bit of an issue here because this child, not a little baby but a toddler, also fascinating, has been attracted by the viewer's attention, is staring right out at us, and is pointing to his mother's womb. This is Mary, by the way. This is his mother, right? Saying, don't forget where I came from. Don't forget that the importance of the mother of God is an importance that I carry. Without her, I cannot be. Without her, yes, her consent, her acknowledgement, I cannot be. And you need to be part of that story with me. So that's that gaze. But the problem is that he's lost his latch, apparently. And that's really difficult and tricky because it means that he's not feeding properly which is also absolutely fascinating when you think about it in terms of everyday motherhood. And you'll see that Joseph is just an exhausted old man. There are no halos. The wall is broken. Here, the holy family, Jesus among them, is a refugee on the move and on the run. So this painting was also very precious to us in the group in terms of the articulacy of crossing borders and what Orazio was trying to do. Orazio painted four versions of this painting. This is the only one with a fluffy donkey in it which is a bummer because I think the donkey is incredibly sweet. The painting is in uh, Birmingham, in Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. And if you took the wall away, what I think you've noticed is that this donkey is not to scale. This donkey is absolutely massive. So there was something important for the painter about including this animal within this painting. Uh, but as he was experimenting with this motif in different ways, he thought, ah, maybe there's another way to do this. But it's a, it's a brilliant and very interesting painting in many ways, though it shares in a different way some of the same issues, debates, and points of contention as the Moses picture. And looking at the story of this painting in relation to crossing borders, at the National Gallery, we decided to make a film with four different perspectives. What you can see in the larger image is an artist, Ali Cherry, who won a silver lion at the Venice Biennale, which is a very, very big deal in a major art exhibition in Venice, which takes place every two years. He is an enormously exciting artist, and he was the artist in residence at the National Gallery when I started my project. So we asked him, as a Muslim artist, to speak about what Moses means for him. And he says he inhabits the border space, the space of in-between, of transition. And we also invited a priest who has lived experience of being a refugee and a rabbi who is the principal of Leo Bate College, which is a rabbi training college. And we also invited a curator, Carol Howell, who's the director of the Foundling Museum, who was speaking about people with lived experience of being in care and how that relates to the story of Moses as, in some, in some people's view, the ultimate foundling. And so here are some of the moments in that film. And you can watch that film on the National Gallery's YouTube channel. So please do so, and you will see, I think, you know, about 10 or 12 minutes of really inspiring stories from all of these extraordinary people. The National Gallery also has an annual program called Take One Picture, where they encourage schools from all over the country to engage with one painting in the National Gallery's collection, and then to have a free exhibition in the middle of the National Gallery in a very prominent space where the children's art is the exhibitions. So the exhibits are comprised of the way that school children have responded to the painting. And in this year, 
children were responding to Orazio's The Finding of Moses. And I wanted this to be a project which was connected not only to scholarly work within this interfaith network and to art historians, but to that wider public vision. So being able, therefore, to connect with these children and families was really special. And you can see here two children who were working on their exhibit, where this is a close-up of some cardboard that wove together the basket within which they placed a sculpture, an image of the baby Moses. And so they're talking about how together as a class they wrote down what the baby might have been feeling. And it's amazing. It's such a hugely diverse you know, range. She's feeling nervous and scared, but happy as well. So this sense of entering into the experience of this tiny child, who in the Orazio painting is self-soothing and sucking his thumb, was no doubt a transformative experience for that classroom. And there were some others who wrote these tags, which were letters, invented letters, from Jochebed, the mother of Moses, to the baby Moses. And they connected them to these sort of nests, which were uh, meant to be a bit like baskets. To my beautiful son... Every time I think about you, I get sad. I would do anything for you to be here right now. But I had to take you away. I miss you, Moses. We might see you again. I can't read that without crying. And I'm sure that each and every one of you, whether you have lived experience of refugee, asylum seeker, any kind of migration, immigration life, historically in your heritage or now. And at this point, I'm pretty sure that the number of people in this room who do not have any of that is, is an increasingly small number. If you have any of that in your life and in your background, you cannot help, I don't think, but be touched empathetically in some way by the way in which these children and also those who have gathered around this painting through the Amundsen Fellowship Project have found themselves, have entangled themselves somehow in this story in a painting which one of my Muslim feminist colleagues described to me, and I love this, as a bunch of white women pointing at stuff. So this painting can go beyond that, but only if we choose to see it that way, only if we choose to look at it in that way. And here's another way that this painting went beyond that. We produced five films together with our interfaith network participants called Divine Dialogues. And you can find this on the National Gallery site as well in the Art and Religion section. And this is a still from an image by Jacqueline Nichols, who is an Orthodox feminist Jewish artist. And she did this project where she drew her own response to the Talmud every day, which is an amazing thing to do in many ways because it has this deep connection to faith. This, what I think, is an extraordinary practice of discipline, that daily habit, and her works of art as ways of getting into and interpreting these deep connections between the scripture on the page and the scripture in her life. And she was a, a participant in our interfaith group looking together at this painting and then very kindly agreed to produce this film for us. Here we see um, a couple of priests and three much more normal, reasonable human beings. So this is the Crossing Borders event that we had at the National Gallery for the public, for everyone, in September. And so in the center, you see Sam Wells, who's one of the key participants in this. He's the vicar of St. Martin in the Fields. Together with, going left to right, Thomas Ardell, who is the curator of the Faith Galleries at the Museum of London. 
He's been developing this for years with an amazing group of people looking at material culture from people of many different religions. Jasmine Allen, who is the director of the Stained Glass Museum in Ely. That's inside Ely Cathedral, but an independent museum. And some of the glass is sacred, but a lot of it isn't. And one of the things that Jasmine has done is recently acquired a stained glass work of art by Kehinde Wiley, the gay black American artist, where what he's done is taken, image of taken images of saints and then worked them through in order to depict and express the lives of black men today. So Saint Adelaide, you can look this up and find out more about it, is one of the key acquisitions that Jasmine has been working on with her collection there. And you also see Melissa Raphael, a feminist Jewish theologian who talks a lot about images and art in relation to women and Jewish experience, and Gerald Robinson-Brown, who is a priest here in London, and Gerald's most recent book is Black, Gay, Christian, Queer. It is a book that focuses very much on his lived experience in relation to his understanding of Christianity and theology. The subtitle of this book, and I love this because it's such a deeply critical call to justice in the church. The subtitle of this book is The Church and the Famine of Grace. So he, together with many of us for different reasons in the church, are waiting for a moment where grace and liberation will be possible for all. And he brings that intersectional experience right into the heart of the way that he speaks about works of art. And so we were really honored to have him together with this panel of people in order to unpick their relationship to being part of this network and connected to these paintings. All of these people are part of this network. And one of the things that I wanted to do as part of that event and more widely at the gallery was to do stuff like this, to read out aspects and texts from the Quran in relation to this 17th century Italian Christian royal super English super white painting of the finding of Moses and to see what would happen if we were to look at these things together and think about them in relation to each other. And there is such a difference, many of you will know this from one perspective or another, there is such a difference between how the Hebrew Bible describes in the book of Exodus what is happening for Moses in this moment and for Moses' mother and sister and Pharaoh's daughter and everyone surrounding them and what the Quran is describing. And one of my very favorites, favorite moments of this is that it's such a focus on the comfort that God promises to Moses' mother. We inspired the mother of Moses, nurse him, but when you fear for him, put him then into the river and do not fear or grieve. We will certainly return him to you and make him one of the messengers. So the relationship between faith and trust and Moses and mother is foregrounded in the Quran in a way which is quite different. It's done beautifully in another way in the Hebrew Bible. And so it was really good, I think, really generative for the people in the room and for the ongoing legacies of this project to be able to put these aspects of scripture together and think, who is Moses in this text? And for the people who are sitting around in this circle of trust, and it really was, and I hope it continues to be, who is Moses in my life now, in your life now? How does this painting enrich our encounter with scripture and with one another? 
I did an interfaith event this morning, as it happens, with one of the participants in this group, Fatima Ashraf, who is running a mosaic leadership program for Muslims, for women and men who are exploring the relationship between leadership culture and this morning interfaith encounter with art, which was a, a great privilege. And her way of being able to connect with visual culture was utterly unique and very, very precious. And it taught me a lot about Sufism and Sufi poetry. It also taught me a lot about how to, as many people in interfaith work say, how to go beyond tea and samosas. Tea and samosas are not bad things in themselves. I see a couple of you smiling. I think you kind of know what I mean. Tea and samosas are completely delicious and delightful things. But what that kind of stands for is the idea of people who are from different backgrounds and different beliefs just sort of sitting in a room together and sharing food and being like, oh, this is really lovely, but not deeply connecting with one another, not having the tough conversation, not building the courage, not building the safer space in order to go deeper. Maybe not super, super deep. You can't build trust immediately. But then that also makes it a slow process a slow process of slowly coming round to one another, of making our way forward and thinking and feeling together in a way which is genuinely vulnerable. If we are not willing to relinquish something of ourselves, I think good scholarship is the same, but that's another lecture. If we're not willing to relinquish something of ourselves in order to encounter with depth someone whose experience is genuinely different, where there will be borders and limits of different kinds, because that's the nature of celebrating intersectionality and difference. If we're not willing to expose ourselves with vulnerability and openness, then all we've done is eaten a samosa in someone else's presence. And that might be an interesting step, depending on the conversation that you share, but it's, it's insufficient. So what we wanted to do was in some small way move beyond that insufficiency by naming it as insufficient. And this painting helped us do that. I wanted also to connect it to the work that I do now. These are two images from St. James's Piccadilly. So this is the church down the road where I'm now associate rector and I bring all of that network stuff to bear within that. Both of these works of art are by the artist Arabella Dorman. The one on the left is called Flight and the one on the right is called Suspended. If you remember, the networks and the paintings that we were looking at are called Crossing Borders. And so there's been a real resonance for me, having been through that project at the National Gallery, now looking at these two historic exhibitions at St. James's, both of them in the nave. And what I mean by the nave is that it's the part of the church where the congregations sit. So these things are suspended right above the heads of people. They are unmissable, right in the center of the building. And one of them is a, uh, an inflatable boat that carried refugees and that must have seen terrifying journeys and frightened people who didn't know whether or not they would make it. And as you can see, there are life jackets that are suspended from the boat. And there were a series of life jackets which were also clustered beneath, next to the altar, surrounded by figures. And that was there for weeks and weeks. And I've heard, I, I never saw it, which was really sad, but I heard that it had the most monumental impact on people because there's such a difference between reading something in a newspaper article or hearing something on the radio and being beneath a capsized boat suspended in the air, wondering about what it might mean in your own life, my own life. And similarly, in this other work, there are a huge number of clothing items 
that were found on beaches and in around spaces where refugees and where asylum seekers were staying. And so each one of these items of clothing represents a person and has a story. And it's gathered, as you can see, around this central light. And they kind of move. It's a really strange sort of thing. The, the way that air kind of uh, makes its way means that they are, they are not static. So the relationship between air and water is also here a relationship that's really being inscribed in these spaces. And more recently, Iman Tajik, who is an artist with the lived experience of being a refugee who now lives in Scotland, he came to the church to do an artist-in-residence program as part of a festival called Embark. And these are emergency blankets. They look really shimmery and shiny and delightful, but they're emergency blankets. And so on one side of the church, he put the word welcome, and on the other side of the church, he put radical, because he found that on our website. And what I loved about it is he was saying, wow, radical welcome, welcome in. And there were also people, me included, thinking, is that true? Do we really live up to that? It felt like a call for deeper justice, not just to say, oh, yeah, yeah, the welcome is radical, but to say, actually, how far are we getting in our radical welcome? For each of the people who participated in the film that I mentioned earlier, there has been a question in each one of their lives at various moments about the nature of hospitality and who welcomes whom. And with these up, describing certain moments of borderlands and border crossings for these people and the people with whom they work and that they support, I, I want to take a little moment to talk about the relationship between the National Gallery and wider institutions, most certainly the Church of England, and the idea of inclusion. And I think that we can speak about this in relation to higher education institutions as well. Inclusion is a marvelous word. Equity, diversity, and inclusion work is absolutely vital. It's really, really necessary. There is also something buried in this word, which I am increasingly concerned about, and which is connected, I think, to doing the kind of network work that I've been explaining at the National Gallery well, doing it as well as possible. The trouble with inclusion is that it's still a word which is tangled up in power. If I say, I include you, speaking as a white queer woman from Canada with all of the privilege and all of the complexity that I possess, that I have, if I say, I include you, there will be certain moments where there's a power imbalance going in one direction, and there are certain moments where there's a power balance, imbalance going in another direction. And if it sounds weird, for the other person or the other group to say, oh, I include you too. If that sounds odd or if that sounds strange, then a power imbalance has just been exposed. It works exactly the same way with sexism or homophobia or whatever, what have you, you know. If someone says, oh, you are the first woman in our company to be a CEO, welcome to our boardroom, and that woman says, I welcome you as well, it's probably gonna sound a bit weird. And so that's the test, I think, around the relationship between how we enter into, into inclusivity and how we think about power. It was precious to me to be able to locate not only these voices of prominent people with an enormous amount of authority and status in their own fields within the National Gallery's YouTube site and within the National Gallery. It's also precious to me to be able to discern which voices are not being heard and why especially because in that institution, much like the Church of England, these are places in which there are certain kinds of narratives of power that are being, thank God, questioned and dismantled all the time. To be able to look at it and say, what is this painting about? That's one level. 
Why is this painting here? What is this painting for you? Does it bother you? Why? Does it really give you a sense of joy? Do you just think these colors are gorgeous? Do you think, wow, the relationship between British history and Moses, never thought about it that way. All of those things are wonderful, but they all have to be mixed in together if we are going to get to the point where paintings, where works of art, are doing the work of the people. And if we can't quite get there, because I think that's the work of more than my lifetime, of many, many lifetimes, we need to continue to try. We must continue to try, partly because the National Gallery and other museums besides, regardless of their collections, can be an absolutely quintessential, brilliant place for people to be able to meet one another on ground, which at least to me is no less than holy. And that sharing is something that deserves to happen. That sharing is vital. And if we can start to do that sharing in relation to works of art, then I think we are going to get somewhere really, really interesting. And I'd like to end by reading out a couple of quotations and by making sure that you all know about a particular resource. I'm going to do this backwards because I need to remember the resource before I tell you the quotations. And it is something that Ben Quash, together with colleagues, develops and works on here at King's. And it's called the Visual Commentary on Scripture. It's online. It's thevcs.org. And what you'll find there is all kinds of miniature exhibitions based on the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, little passages, where images and texts form a commentary. And the juxtapositions of these images are often so surprising across, across hundreds of years, millennia, of image making and visual culture. And the quality of investigation in that ongoing project is really very exciting. So whether you are in the least bit interested in religion or art history or anything else, if it's never occurred to you to use it or if you use it all the time and you think, ah, in light of this, I want to go back, just take a look and see because this is also a King's project, which is very exciting. So here are my two quotations. One of them is from a statement that the interfaith group developed together in order to ensure that what we were doing when we were meeting was something that was, if nothing else, well-intentioned to be able to bring spaces of courage and empathy into the National Gallery. And the other is from a colleague. So here we go. The National Gallery's sacred art networks are opportunities for open-minded and mutually respectful dialogue regarding visual art from many faith traditions. Network events are intended to be positive and encouraging spaces for participants of all faiths and none. As such, the National Gallery expects all participants to demonstrate sensitivity and wisdom in the way in which they share their views and engage in the spirit of friendship within this diverse forum as we seek to understand one another's differences and shared goals while exploring sacred art together. That's our aim. That's the purpose. And finally, really finally, there we go. It's a quotation from my colleague, Susanna Avery Quash, who I mentioned earlier, without whom none of this would be possible. And she's talking about museums as places of hospitality and dignity for all. And she says this, Christian imagery is not yet dead and gone. Where it has disappeared from consciousness, it can still be brought back to life and utilized in bold and imaginative ways that prove that entry into a rich potential new world and its juxtaposition with other worlds is thrilling and informative 
even transformative. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.